Father, we thank you this morning that you love us so much that you would send your son to die for us. And as we look at a more excellent way this morning, speaking of love, speaking of the kind of love that you possess, the kind of love that we can have because we find ourselves in Christ. And so we say thank you for that. May you bless the sermon as uh, use the pulpit here use the uh, servant to use the holy spirit to speak through me this morning as we approach a subject matter that um is huge a huge subject matter we pray for your presence with us may we be attentive to the word of god this morning in jesus precious precious and lovely name amen let's begin uh i called this sermon uh, a more excellent way and I asked Todd last week to lay off of uh, verse 31b. And so thank you, Todd. You did a really good job of laying off of 31b. Uh, I'll start there and I'll read uh, the full chapter with you if you'll follow along with me. Uh, and I show you a still more excellent way. A more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. In our society today, the word love is thrown around in a lot of different ways. As a matter of fact, it is used rather carelessly, I think. From the music we listen to, anybody ever listen to any music that's got love in it? Love is all you need. Love will keep us together, which we find out the kind of love the world has does not keep them together. Love is a many splendored thing. Boy, that's going way back, isn't it? But I see a lot of gray heads smiling when I said that one. There's a lot of songs about love. There's also a bunch of movies that we watch that are about love. And, and especially on the Hallmark Channel, you know every one of them the good guy always gets the beautiful girl at the end and 
you know, we're back to that thing again. And that seems to be a never-ending theme on the Hallmark Channel. Um, love is used to describe our feelings for everything from God, how we feel about God, how we feel about chocolate. How many love chocolate? Oh, yeah. How many of you love God? Ah. How many of you love your family? Yeah, on and on we go, right? We use that word a lot. Oh, I just love the 49ers when they're winning how many of you are in the when they're winning category a lot of you I'm sure the unfortunate thing is the kind of love that is being thrown around is not close in resemblance to the type of love that is being described here in the scriptures that we just read I'm afraid that the world and our culture have no understanding or capability to understand much less produce true love if you can't understand it, you certainly can't produce it. Although we are deep into 1 Corinthians, we are deep into it. We're 13 chapters. This is the 13th chapter of 16. That means you're deep. We've already covered 12. 75% of the book is covered, and I think we're just now seeing, and you can disagree if you want to, but I believe that we are now seeing the thematic core or the center of the book when we come to this chapter because what's gone on so far a whole lot of division you can't have agape true love for someone and be divided with them it just doesn't fit it is love the unconditional agape love that is described in this chapter and that is the one thing the Corinthian believers needed to stop the divisions. They needed this to stop their divisions. But what did they want? I want what I want. And that's not this kind of love. He, contra he contrasts the unconditional agape love, the ultimate Christian virtue, the ultimate Christian standard with the kinds of character vices that have been marred the relationships and the interaction of the believers at Corinth. He's contrasting them. This chapter, the love chapter, that is fondly read at weddings. How many of you have heard this chapter read at a wedding? All the way up to verse 8a. We don't want to talk about prophecy and tongues and knowledge. But I'm about to tell you what. You're about to go through some knowledge if you're getting married, let me tell you. But it's, it's, it's here. How many of you have a plaque that talks about 1 Corinthians 13? It's, it's in houses all over the place. I've seen it everywhere. And the Corinthians needed to have those plaques up there to remind them this is the kind of love they had. But they didn't have this kind of love for each other, so they were divided. Does the church need this kind of love today? Absolutely it does. That's where we're headed. It's authentic love. It's the love we should have for one another. We must remember the context from which this beautiful display of poetic words from Paul comes from. Because it's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever read in Scripture. This chapter, I believe, is one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. And it's so necessary in your life. You want to grow in the Christian life? You got to love. Some of you believe that. 
And it's interesting that this context comes right between chapter 12 and 14. You got this passage, chapter 13, right? That's what comes in the middle of 14 and, and, and uh, 12 and 14. That number between there is 13. That's where we find ourselves. But it is interesting that that's where this is right here. Here's the gifts that you have. Some of you are misusing your gifts. You're abusing others with your gifts. And in 14, we're going to discover a whole bunch of other things they were doing wrong with their gifts. But right smack dab in the middle is the answer to all of it. It's the answer to all the division in the church. It's the answer to division in Valley Bible Church. Stop worrying about yourself and start worrying about your brother. That's this kind of a love. And that's what he's going to show us. You had the Corinthians were strutting around bragging out of the sense of selfish ambition rather than using their gifts for one another. They weren't edifying the saints. They were edifying themselves, puffing themselves up. And uh, I know none of us do that. So this chapter argues that Paul will argue that things done from the heart of love, the agape love, should be considered a virtuous thing. It should be your number one priority is to love. Now, what is agape love? What does that even mean? Well, the passage is going to describe it pretty well, but I thought I would just give you the definition that I found in, a, in one of the commentaries that I was looking through. Um, it says this, the word for love in the Greek language in this passage, every time he uses that word love here, he's using the word agape in the Greek. And agape is a specific type of love. There's three types that we all know of. There's eros, there's uh, the, phileo, uh, the Philadelphia phileo, a love which is very reciprocal I love you because of you love me and that type of thing this is completely different than that this one here is completely different so listen here here's what it says this kind of love that seeks the highest good of the other person agape love means I'm looking for what's best for your interests not what's best for mine if I'm loving you properly and oh let me tell you Nothing would break my heart more than to hear you say that you don't feel I love you. That just crushes my spirit. Because I do love you. And if I'm doing a poor job of that, I want to prove to you I love you. So, and, and that's how we should all feel. Not just me. You should all feel that way. We go on. The highest good of other persons even at the price of one's own comfort, safety, and benefit. This kind of love that seeks the highest good of the other person, even at the price of one's own comfort, safety, and benefit. Does that sound familiar to any of you? What kind of love is he displaying there? Tell me, who gave up coming out of heaven at the, with his father, separating himself off, becoming human? taking all of that and put it in a body, coming lower than the angels. Who did that? Christ. He left the comforts of heaven, the safety of being with his father, to die on a cross. He succumbed to the Roman soldiers that arrested him. Remember when he said, you're looking for me, I am the one you're looking for, and they all fell down. The guts that they had to get back up and still arrest him is amazing to me. But that's what happened. 
The word was not used frequently outside Jewish and Christian literature. It implies, listen, it implies permanence, unconditional charity, a decision more than a feeling, a commitment more than a relationship. not a feeling people hallmark channel will tell you it's a feeling it's not a feeling i'm gonna tell you what let me let me just give you this young people in this room if you're not married let me tell you something if you decide to marry someone you better be in love and i'm gonna tell you what it better be more than a feeling you better be willing to make changes in your own life because it benefits them and do not get married thinking that they're gonna change that is the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your life. They will change if God decides to change them, but if you marry them thinking you're going to change them and that's why you're marrying them because it's going to get better, I'm not getting along with them while I'm dating them, but I'm gonna, it's going to get better because we're going to change everything. No, it's not. That's the wrong attitude to have. You get married to that person regardless if they ever change. If you can't say that, then do not marry them. Because within about two years, you'll be in my office wanting counseling. You'll be trying to tell me that he's unsaved so you can get out of it. Mm. Agape means loving not for one's own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And that's how God loves you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. And he wants you because he loves you. And he loves you so much that he would send the only begotten son of his to be the propitiation, the satisfaction. There was only one that could be that. And he came willingly to die on a cross for you and for me. It's the most beautiful display of agape love you'll ever see. Now, I can start to preach the sermon. I'm going to talk about three things that I think love is. Love is enriching, love is edifying, and love is enduring in this chapter. It's enriching, it's edifying, and it's enduring. Enriching. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, let's look at that. In these three verses, these first three verses, one through three, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and now and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Not I have nothing, I am nothing. You see the difference? Not, well, I did all that and I have nothing. No, you're nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I could burn myself as a sacrifice to help you, and it would mean nothing if I did it without love. It would just be another life gone. 
So in this, we see three verses. These three verses, Apostle, the Apostle Paul lists some very impressive acts. Although in context of what he is saying, we recognize that the list forms a hyperbole. It is a rhetorical hyperbole. What's a hyperbole? Exaggerated statement. It's an exaggerated statement or claims not meant to be taken literally. And that's what he's doing. He's saying things that no one person can have all these things. It's impossible. And look, I, I wrote it down. I, I highlighted it when I printed this. If you can kind of see that, you'll see all this yellow. I think you can kind of, can you see that a little bit? You see that yellow? I highlighted the times that he said all, or he implied all. When he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, does that mean there's a tongue of angels that he could even know it? No, it's hyperbole. He's just using, he's saying, if I could speak in every tongue across the globe, every tongue known to man, and could speak like the angels, but I did this without love, it would be worthless. It would be void. It would be empty. And I would just be, and look, I would become a gong or a clanging cymbal. Not just my speech would be that, but I become that. You ever run into somebody like that? I hope it ain't me. Have you? You're like, oh, here they come. A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. They don't love anybody. They're going to tell me about this and that. Oh. Mm. And then, even if you could do all these works, Paul lists here, which are miraculous. They're astonishing. They're extreme. It's unbelievable stuff that he's mentioning here. But even if you could do it, Without agape love, the most eloquent, intelligent, impressive speech, even the speech of angels, would sound like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It would do nothing. As we read on, we see that love, without love, our prophecies, revelations, and knowledge, and faith, and charitable actions are worthless without love. They're empty of value, unworthy of praise or reward from the Father. What's he say about our works? All of your good works are filthy rags before him. And I would just put in there, all of your good works, all of the things that you think you're doing, all of that stuff that you think you're doing for him, if you don't have love in it, you're not doing it for him. And if you don't have love in it, you're definitely not doing it for the people that you're ministering to. You just aren't. You can't. It's impossible. God's, God set this passage in place that says, if you're doing these things, the hyperbole of it all, the, the, uh, the, the rhetorical statement is, you can't succeed without love. And I, I highlighted all those alls because there, it covers everything, guys. He's leaving no room for you to be able to go, well, but I have this one. And he's really going after the thing that they were having the most trouble with. You're going to see that later. The Corinthians, what they were actually going through, the, the, the harder part of it. So the context is showing that Paul was presenting him extreme hypothetical examples of the most excessive acts imaginable or possible. And then we see that repeated. Look, tongues of men and angels. He's that's an all. It doesn't say all, but tongues of men and angels. He's covering everything. And then he says uh, all mysteries, all faith, all knowledge all my possessions, my body. When I give you my body, I've given you my all. 
right? If you give up your body for somebody, you've given your all. Can't give anything more than that. Paul's argument is even more compelling given the exaggerated hypothesis and feats. Without love, the most eloquent speech, insightful knowledge, and sacrificial acts invariably are steeped in some kind of selfish action of the individual. I'm going to come up here and preach, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to look real good doing it. That's the wrong reason to be up here. That's the wrong reason to be up here. If I don't love you, if I don't have love, I don't want to stand up here. I don't deserve to stand up here. I pray God remove any of the men that are in this pulpit that don't love you. Now, sometimes it'll appear we don't love you because we're preaching a passage that's going to step on your toes. That's what this passage is going to do. I haven't found one yet that doesn't step on someone's toes. What's the reason of saying it if it doesn't step on your toes a little bit? All right, got to hustle. But sometimes we do things because we want to be the guy or be the gal. I don't really want to do this, but I'll do it because they're going to look at me and think I'm really good because I did. Wrong reason. Might as well stay home. Don't volunteer for it. Please don't come help me if you don't want to be there. Just stay home. I'm serious. If I asked you to help me and you said, oh, man, all right, he's the pastor. I got to go help him. Stay home! You say, pastor, I want to come help you because I love you. And that's what God's put in my heart to do. Oh, now come on. Guess what? We're all going to be blessed by that. Everyone around gets blessed when you're loved. You ever around somebody that just loves you unconditionally? You, let me tell you something. When you're around somebody that loves you unconditionally, you know what you want? You want to be around them more. I found out my wife loves me pretty much unconditionally. She does it a whole lot better than I do it. She does. I admit it. All right. Move on to the second. Love is edifying. After explaining this matchless value of love as an essential ingredient to a fruitful Christian life, I'm telling you, you have to have this love or your life will not be fruitful. It just won't be. Paul goes on in verses 4 through 7 to give us a clear definition of the characteristics of agape love. Look at this. And he has, he lists, I listed, I went through it, I did, I did some homework for you. I am not making you do it, I did it. But you need to go look at it and make sure I did it right. I put down the positive aspects that we find in this, and I put down the negative contrasts. And I'm going to talk about the negative contrasts, but we're going to, I'm going to list them for you. In verse 4, he says, love is patient. Now, it has been my experience that I haven't found anybody yet that does that 100% of the time. Right? So I've got to work on that person. Uh, love is kind. I try to do that, but I'm not always real successful at that one either. Uh, it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now look at the contrast. 
And we find the contrasts are usually in mutual verses. Same, same type of verse. So it is not jealous. Jealousy is a negative. But it is not that. It is, it does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does that sound like Christ? All of this sounds like him. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And I think, as I looked at this and studied through this, those negative contrasts describe some of the problems that the Corinthian church was having. Matter of fact, I'm going to show you that. We'll take a look. How many of you have been here for this whole series on 1 Corinthians? All right, praise God. If you haven't been, there are all kinds of ways you can watch it on the internet, on our website, and you can get caught up because it's really hard to catch you up in one sermon. I can't do that. You just got to go and look at it, and, and you'll see these things. But let me show this. And take a look back at some of the things that they had been facing, that, that the, the Corinthian church had been struggling with. It says, love is not jealous in verse 4, but the Corinthians were marred by jealousy and strife in chapter 3. It was, a, it was so obvious that that's what they were doing. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Paulus. I follow Stephen. They had all these issues going on. But the Corinthians were marred by jealousy and strife. Love does not brag, but the Corinthians boasted. Chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 6. Love is not arrogant, but they had allowed arrogance to flourish. And it flourished, their arrogance. Well, I speak in tongues, and you don't. I must have the bigger gift. I did this first service. I'll do it here. I just want you to know I'm not any higher than any of you. I'm right here on the floor with you. Sorry, sound people driving them crazy, probably. Those Sunday school workers across the way that are dealing with your children right now, they're not any lower than us. They're, if your gift is a gift of helps, if your gift is a gift of giving, if you're, whatever your gift is, if you're exercising it, you are, we're all the same in the body. Amen? We're all the same. So now I've got to go back up here so I don't drive the sound people crazy. And that way I can actually see you guys and make sure you're not falling asleep. Love does not act unbecomingly, but the Corinthian church tolerates shameful and disgraceful intrusions. That's chapter 6, chapter 11. I could go on and summarize all the negative contrasts. I stopped right there because I realized there might be a whole ton of them. And there are. But we have this. The Corinthian church, listen to, what, listen to what they had, what God had blessed them with. Watch this. They had plenty of funding. They had money. They had an incredible locale. If you look at the maps, you'll see that they were in a, an area that was wealthy. The trades went right through them. They had countless spiritual gifts. They had a legacy of celebrity speakers, teachers. They had Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And I'm like, this has got to be like the top five of all time that they had there. They lacked, but they lacked the one thing that they needed the most. 
The greatest thing is what they lacked. They lacked what was readily available. They lacked a more excellent way. They lacked love. They lacked agape love. They, they had it because they had the Holy Spirit, but they didn't exercise it. They just kept going in their own way, their own selfish way. Last, love is enduring. enduring. Paul adds one final characteristic. I left it out of the first, those four through seven, but in 8a, he says this. He says, one final characteristic of love to his list is this. Love never fails. Love never fails. Mm. This does not mean that love will never let you down. In the context of what Paul is saying here, he contrasts the ever-abiding, never-ending permanence of love, enduring with the, with the temporary nature of some of the gifts and the experiences with which the Corinthians were so proud and enamored with. And he names three of them here. So he says in verse eight, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Hmm. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it'll be done away with. Same word, done away, both spots on prophecy and knowledge. Same exact Greek word. So Pastor Todd dealt with this last week about the prophecy, the tongues. The, the, he, he, he goes after these three gifts, and, and Pastor Todd spoke about these last week, and Tim's going to be speaking about it the week after that, and Todd, the week after that, and me, we were just going to keep talking about it until we run out of it. All right? But prophecy, the ability to pronounce the revelations of God with divine prophetic authority will be done away. This suggests that the gift of prophecy will be done away by some external force or conditions that renders it obsolete. Now, let me say this. It says very clearly in Scripture, don't forsake the prophecies. It doesn't say don't forsake the prophet. Don't forsake the prophecies. So how many of you realize there's some prophecies that Christ left with us that some of the major and minor prophets left with us that have not been fulfilled yet? How many, do you understand there are prophecies? Has Christ come back yet? No, but he said he was going to, right? So you, you, that's what he's saying when he says that don't forsake the prophecies. He's saying don't forsake the things that the, the real, live, actual prophets said. And guess who the final prophet was? Christ himself. He's announcing that he's coming back. And listen, very interesting thing here. We're going to see this in a moment, but we don't get from any one prophet, we don't get the full picture. We get glimpses. We don't get the full photo. We get a little glimpse of the corner of one, and then and later on we get, and he's going to say that. Some of it's in part. Some of it's, we've been prophesied in part. You've been told portions of it. But there's coming a time where you're going to get all of it. All right? So he says, tongues will cease. You see that in the verse. I'm not making it up. It's there. He says it will cease. And then he goes on and says the same thing about knowledge, that it'll be done away. Same exact Greek word describes what those are going to do. They're going to be gone. And I'm really terrible at the Greek words, so I don't usually say them. Katargio, I think is how it's said. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's there. Trust me. The word knowledge is likely referring to the acquisition of knowledge through God's special revelation of the word of knowledge. doesn't mean that you'll never be able to know anything. That's not what he's saying there when he says it's going to be done away with. All right. 
So now, that pushes us to go to verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Well, remember, I told you a couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago now, I think, that I told you guys that 1 Corinthians was written early on. It's one of the first books written in the New Testament. So we still had the Gospels need to be written. There's other books, other epistles. Paul was still going to write other epistles that were going to come after this. So we know in part and we prophesy in part. And even Christ, who knew everything, only left us with certain information. Remember they said, when will you return? When are you going to come back and get us? He said, it's not for me to know. That's my father's business. Even he said, it's a partial picture yet. I don't know all that yet. Now, listen, Christ knows, but he chose in his humanity not to know. He's going to leave that to the father. I'm going to tell you when it's going to happen. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you when, when Christ is coming back. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I know this for sure. You're all, it got really quiet in here, didn't it? I didn't do this first service. I should have. He's coming back when the bride of Christ is completed. Once the final person, that final individual that gets saved, once they have become a Christian, that's when the bride will be completed and the father is going to say, son, go get your bride. Now, I told you something that is true, but I didn't give you anything specific, did I? That's really tricky. All right. Now, so this is interesting. Even the true prophets representing the divine revelations of God with authority never had the complete picture. And that, we see that in 1 Peter 10. I mean, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. He talks about that. I don't have time to go through all the passages. But when the, verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. It's interesting. That be done away is the same word he used over here when he said that, that the prophecy and knowledge we're going to be done away. It's the same word again. And I don't know, he comes up with another one, that's the same word. So he's, I think he's meaning the same exact thing again. But when the perfect comes, well, here's the argument. Here's, here's the issue, and I don't want to step on it too much because Tim's going to talk about this in great detail next week. But I just want to say this real quick. I, I want to tell you, this is not when Christ returns. This is not when we get into heaven. How do I know that? That would be, if that were true, it would be totally 100% completely out of context with what he's talking about. You don't go to eschatology when you haven't been talking about eschatology. He's not talking about it. He's talking about right now. So this is where I come up with this idea and thought, and I'm not by myself. There's a lot of theologians a lot smarter than me that have studied this, and Valley Bible Church for 52 years has held this position. That the perfect, when it comes, we believe it to be the completed canonization works of this scripture. That's the perfect. That's perfect. Listen, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, there's still tongues going on. There's still prophecy happening. There's still knowledge that's happening. People have supernatural ability to be able to understand things. That was still going on. Why? That's the foundation of the church. It's beginning. It's kicking off. It's going. And then these gifts were also used to verify the authentication and authenticate the apostles. That's what they were used for. You do know we don't have apostles today, right? 
a rhetorical question. I think you know. It wasn't a rhetorical question, but since only two of you answered, I'll say it's a rhetorical question. Um, but when the perfect comes, so we believe, I, I believe in studying this and looking at, if you just look at the structure of how this is written, you can see it's pretty clear. And in the Greek, it even becomes more clear. So, prophecy, tongues, and supernatural knowledge were still active at the time that he wrote this letter. But as Todd pointed out last week, this is the last time that you hear Paul talk about tongues is in this book, is in this, in this letter. He doesn't talk about it anymore after this because he said it's going to cease. He didn't say when, just said it's going to cease. It's going it's to do its own self away. It's just going to go away. It's not going to be an outside external force. That's what happens on the other. The external force that stops prophecy and knowledge is this. This is the condition that stops those when the word of God was completed. Everything that you need for a godly life, right here. This tells you everything you need to know about the Father. It tells you everything you need to know about the Son. It tells you everything you need to know about the Holy Spirit. And it tells you everything you need to know about you. And each other. And then he has two examples. I know I'm moving here. He has two examples of, um, of this. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I, I used to think like a child. And uh, I used to reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. I told him in the first service, I know some men that never did do away with the childish things. And I had some wives amen that, so I, I don't know what that was about, but keep your amens to yourself right now. So he spoke and thought and reasoned like a child, but when he became a man, he, they were, look it says, look it says it again, I did away. I did away with it. That's, that's that same word again. It's in here all kinds of times. Same Greek word. Secondly, he said that uh, when we look in a mirror, right now it's dimly reflective. It's what, you know what their mirrors were back then? They had brass vessels, and they would just polish up the brass as good as they could get it, and that's how they would look in a mirror to see themselves. You ever look at yourself in a brass object? It doesn't look near as clear as a mirror that you look in. And I was telling them in the early service, I said, you women should be thankful that you have these really clear mirrors because I'm, I'm wondering what your makeup would have looked like if you had done it in that brass thing, you know. But uh, that's me just getting myself in trouble. I shouldn't do it twice, but I did. But um, their knowing was partial because they couldn't see it all. They hadn't, it all hadn't been revealed scripturally. It hadn't been written yet. So they just had a dim view of it at that point. It was so much more to be added to the scriptures. And when we get to Revelation, it ends. Verse 13. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. Abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Is this agape love? Paul finishes off the chapter by going back to his original theme of love. He reminds us once more of what is enduring. The enduring principle is love. For eternity, we're going to be loving each other. So if you're not loving me now, you've got a lot of catching up to do in heaven. And we're going to experience God's love there the whole time. Yeah, you talk about being under an umbrella. Hmm. 
Listen to this. He reminds us once more of what is enduring. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge. These three, they will cease. They're going to come to an end. But faith, hope, love, these three, they will abide. They will abide for all eternity. Faith looks back to Calvary. Hope looks forward to the coming of what's coming. Love is for now. Love is forever. Love is what God is. Love is the greatest thing of all. You thought I was done, but not yet. Here's my conclusion. And um, I, I saw this in a commentary by um, Chuck Swindoll. I saw a lot of these questions. I've, I got some of my own here, so I kind of mixed it in with what he was saying. But as I studied this chapter, I, I realized that the applications are countless. This love thing should be in every, it should permeate every aspect of your life. But to help us begin to put love to work, consider with me several self-evaluating questions that arise from this chapter. And I encourage you this morning not to be satisfied with just simply answering the questions, but to really think on them. Look at the chapter again and meditate on it and remind yourself of the areas that you fall short in. First section of questions. I have like five of them. I'm going to hurry. Do you think love is absolutely essential in your ministry? Is love the most important part of your relationship with others? Or have you become caught up with the mission and the methods? The Corinthians love to point out their spiritual achievements and accomplishments. Do you do the same? I had to ask myself these questions, guys. Are you motivated by authentic agape love? Or are you driven by accomplishments, activities, and projects? Are you driven by being in charge of a ministry? Are you driven by, no, no, no. Are you driven by the love of Christ in your heart that's got to pour out? You will not be fruitful in ministry if you don't love. Second area, do you demonstrate your love? Oh, you know I love you. No, I don't know it. Does it show through the way that you treat others? When considering verses four through seven, how well do you stack up to the standard of this section? Use these verses this week to help you identify and admit the unloving areas in your life and begin to correct them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask him, so this means you have to pray, ask him to enable you to change each of the specific areas that you know need changing so that you can operate in agape love third does your love fade in and out am I the only one that has that is it hot and cold does your love fluctuate because of the response of others well I was, I was loving them but then they said something rude to me now I don't love them anymore well that's not love 
They're earning your love. That's not love. That's not this kind of love. This kind of love is not earned. It's just freely given. It's unconditional. Remember that term, unconditional. Is it really agape love, or have you been operating in your marriage, family, church, or ministry at a level of love that is not unconditional? Are you loving on your wife for what you can get out of her? Are you loving on your husband for what he can do for you? I said earlier, my wife is much better at the unconditional love than I. And I love her more than any of you. But I can sometimes be really hard in this area. But she is so good at it, it's incredible. She's not here today, so I can brag on her a little bit. She's, her love is so unconditional, she stayed home today. Um, all right, think about how you respond to others when they act in an unloving way towards you. Just think about how, they, how you act whenever they are unloving toward you. Do you give them the benefit of the doubt? They're having a bad day? Or do you love on them? Say, hey, bub, like if Tim was doing that to me, I'd say, what's going on, buddy? What's going on? You don't normally act that way toward me. What's going on? Let me pray with you. Let's figure it out. What's that? What's that? What am I doing then? I'm loving on him. Right? I don't just go, I'm writing that dude off. What a jerk. Now, that wasn't very loving of me, was it? All right. Do you have opportunities in your life to minister with unconditional grace and mercy toward the unlovely? Or do you reserve your love for those who deserve it? Finally, and this is what you've been waiting for, finally. Does love come to the surface of your life more than any other virtue? In Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit, love comes first, Galatians 5, 22. James says the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself in James 2, 8. Paul writes in Romans 13, 10 that love is the fulfillment of the law. In those, if those around you were to identify one virtue to describe you, would it be love? Or would they see the great zeal and conviction with, with which you hold and defend the articles of the Christian faith? I know all the right doctrines, but I don't love you. Well, that guy's, I know him as a guy that's an apologetist that doesn't love anybody. Well, you're not being used by God. Do all your apologetics you want. If you're not loving people, you got a problem. Would they characterize you as someone dedicated to the work of the ministry? but you don't have love. Hmm. All of these are great things, but without love, unconditional love that leads to hands-on demonstrations of grace, mercy, and charity toward others. The greatest of these Christian virtues is diminished at best if you don't have love. The ability to love can come only from love's divine source. So as we try this morning to bridge the loveless gap that we have in our hearts, let us recall the great love God has shown us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when you're dealing with a brother or a sister that he died for them too. Let's depend on his Holy Spirit to produce in us 
an authentic and consistent agape love for others. Church. I don't ask those questions. I ask those questions of me. I, I don't ask them to make you feel bad. I ask you those questions to get you to reflect and think. And if Valley Bible Church would love each other this way, we could change Hercules. We could change the Bay Area. I believe that with all my heart because people know when they're being loved. They know when they're being loved unconditionally. Thank you for loving me unconditionally. I've been raised at this church. 52 years I've been here and I've experienced unconditional love. Thank you. I hope that I do the same to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this great love that you have for us, a love that was so, so incredible that in order to restore relationship to us, you would give the most valued treasure you could ever give. And so we just say thank you for that. May we this week not just have heard those questions that we asked and go out the back door and forget that they were ever asked, but may we look at the passage again and again this week and answer the questions through prayer. Oh, Lord, would you do us a favor and show us areas that we're not loving properly in that we might fully act as the Son did? We're supposed to be following after Christ, and we're supposed to be acting like him. Show us where we're not, and help us to make those changes. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.